0: Hi, and welcome to the SIF podcast, where we discuss advice and solutions for the modern therapist whilst trying to help the public find the right treatment and advice for themselves. I'm your host, Mike James, and welcome to episode 17. Now today, I am really excited to introduce this week's guest. Alistair Beverley, a.k.a. the LD Physio, is a man on a mission. In a sea of therapists swimming along with the current, he is most definitely a man swimming upstream hard in the opposite direction. He's one of the most proactive and passionate people in trying to get his valuable message across, not just to therapists, but to patients, the public and the wider healthcare industry at large. He's a passionate advocate for helping people with learning disabilities and enabling therapists to provide the most effective treatment and enhanced
1: patient experience as possible. Welcome to the show, Alistair. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for giving me the chance to, to talk and you know, get the message out there of what we've been working on. Thank you. Now, we first met at Therapy Expo last year, um, yeah.
0: but I've been a massive fan since a couple of months before that when you joined Jack on the physio Matters. Yeah, that's true. And Personally, it was humbling and a little bit embarrassing when I listened to you on that podcast because as someone who likes to think of myself as relatively current, relatively aware of a lot of the political and personal situations that go on in our industry, then it was something that really shone a light on things I needed to learn more about. And um, certainly since since you were so patient trying to teach me very novice Maketana, um Therapy expert, then I've gone away. And, and it's certainly something that I've spent a lot of time trying to read about, learn about, and, and it's such an important area for all therapists and anyone working in the healthcare industry to know about. So, go on, sorry, I cut you off. No, sorry, I was just
1: going to say I completely agree. And I think, you know, much as people may think that you know, me working as the LD physio is about how I work with people with learning disabilities. What we're trying to do is we're trying to improve health knowledge so that there isn't a need for specialisms like me in the future. My job is to do myself out of a job, essentially, how I see it, so that people with learning disabilities don't need specialists because mainstream services can provide that support that's needed to keep them healthy. Absolutely. And there's, there's a
0: lot of people now in whatever relative area that they're working in coming along with that line that, you know, ultimately, the the thing we're trying to do is make ourselves redundant. Yeah, certainly. So, So you're working clearly in an area that is quite niche and quite specialist, as you've already mentioned. So tell the listeners a little bit of your background and how you ended up working in this field.
1: Yeah so i mean my, so just just to start my um brother has down syndrome so he's got learning disabilities um he's my older brother um so grown up around people with learning disabilities his friends clubs um it was all just you know part of part of growing up um then i started volunteering for um an organisation called um oh cracky what was their name uh, special olympics no it wasn't special olympics before that it was called I've, I've genuinely forgotten their name. That's really, really bad for a podcast. Um, but they provide sp- sort of sports summer camps for people with disabilities. And I used to go along to them with my brother, get involved. I like sports. You know, I, I was a very keen sportsman as a, as a younger person. And help out putting the cones out. And then my brother went to a Special Olympics um, training club in Sheffield. And I used to go along and take him there. And then I used to help put the cones out. At the same time, I was um, studying at Sheffield Hallam University to um, a physiotherapy degree. Um, and qualified um, as a physiotherapist. Now, I qualified in 2010 at a point um, in time where physiotherapy jobs were like gold dust. Um, There weren't many around, and I was very, very lucky to secure a job working in the community in Mansfield with people with learning disabilities. Um, That wasn't necessarily what I set out to do. I didn't necessarily have a plan or come out of university with a clear picture of this is what I wanted to do, and I think that's probably set me in good stead to actually get into a career at that point in time when jobs are few and far between. Um, From there, I worked in the community for a couple of years, um, and then I went to work for a specialist organisation who have a day service for people with really, really profound rare genetic um, disorders and very, very complex physical and learning disabilities, establishing an MDT service there with OTs, uh, physios, speech and language and nursing. Um, And then from that, I moved on to working where I work now at Portland College, uh, where I now manage or clinical lead for physiotherapy services. Um, for an educational college for people with physical and learning disabilities. There's a wide spectrum of everybody from people who work with um, with autism um, right the way through to people, people with autism who are looking at getting a job or people with mild learning disabilities right the way through to people with really profound disabilities who really struggle to eat, move, breathe, talk for themselves, um, and we support them there. Um, whilst I've been doing all of that, I've also got two volunteering roles that I've continued with Special Olympics. I've really... really impressed with their work and I've volunteered, I've been lucky enough to travel um, twice as the physiotherapist for the Special Olympics Great Britain squad to two World Summer Championships um, and have also been to a Winter Games, uh, Winter Olympics or Winter Special Olympics um, to train how to do health screening. So Special Olympics, which we'll come on to later, Health Screen Inside, there's a separate arm, which is about trying to improve people's knowledge and understanding of their own health and feed them back into their mainstream healthcare services, um, which is called Healthy Athletes. And I'm responsible for running the physiotherapy arm of that within Great Britain. So lots of different arms. I'm um, a father as well, so a five-year-old, you know, so it's, um, yeah, all good fun. Yeah, busy man. I think there's a dog thrown in there as well, isn't there? There is indeed, yeah. um, Nell's also a therapy dog as well, so she comes around, a pat dog, um, and and comes up to the college and also goes into schools and care homes as well. So yeah, it keeps me on my toes. Yeah, and that's a lucky position to be, someone who can take their dog into work. Yeah, yes. In fact, she's just just coming back from a walk now, actually. Luckily enough, as I'm recording this, my colleagues have taken her for a walk, so she's um, a very lucky dog, around Sherwood Forest.
0: Oh wow, wow. Now we certainly will be coming on to the Special Olympics later on, there's so much info that we want to chat about there. So I guess a good place to start for those listening who may not be familiar with it is, how do we even define what a learning disability is?
1: So there's, a learning disability is a, it's a person's difficulty, or sorry, a person's disability or challenge with taking on and retaining new information that is presented with them now the learning disability affects all areas of someone's life so it's different from what some people call learning difficulties such as dyslexia where it affects some specific areas but people can normally live relatively normal lives and that's not to say people with learning disabilities don't have dyslexia but somebody with down syndrome would probably need help across a wide area of uh, their livelihood and their understanding level would be reduced in all areas as opposed to one area. So it, it literally is a difficulty taking on new information, retaining it, and being able to use that across all areas of your life. And it's just such a shame, I feel, that it's, it's taken as a medical need, when actually it's not a medical healthcare diagnosis. It, it just means, and this is the um, mental health and NHS definition, is that it's a difficulty taking on and retaining new information. Yeah, I remember that really struck a chord with me. It was the, the big thing I,
0: I've heard when you first heard you speak and subsequently since, that's the tagline effectively that I'm always trying to keep in my mind when I'm ever encountering someone with a learning disability. Now, whatever facet of healthcare we're working in, there's more and more information coming around how the importance of just communicating and communication. So knowing that the issue is with taking on information... I guess in this population, it's even more specific and even more consideration
1: is needed. It certainly is. I mean, just, so just to, just to touch on the, the impact of not being able to understand that information. So people with learning disabilities, on average, live 17 years less, have a 17 years shorter life expectancy than their non-learning disabled peers. Now, that is not because they have comorbidities. Now, a lot of people with learning disabilities do. But on average, so we're taking the average person with a learning disability, they live 17 years less than the general population. That is not down to health issues. That's down to poor medical health care. So if we can get communication and points across that helps to enhance that understanding or is presented at a level where the person can understand it, that's not to say that people with learning disabilities can't understand complex things. They just need to have the information to be presented at a level that is relevant to them, that enables them to grasp the understanding. Brilliant. And something I've heard you chat about, and it's a lovely
0: catchphrase, and you really explain it well. But you've talked very really eloquently in the past about purposeful chit chat. Mm. Explain to the listeners what you mean by this and why it's so important.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a point, and how I, I like to make this point. I think it's something that a lot of people may relate to a little bit throughout this lockdown, in that we are we as human beings are inherently sociable animals. We enjoy human-to-human contact. There's a lot of people, you know, who are using virtual contact, Zooms and Microsoft Teams and whatever, um, but a lot of us are missing seeing people, being with people and interacting with people, and the same is most more than likely true of people with learning disabilities. Now, there's not a lot of research out there um, supporting or evidence around there, around the mental health of people, particularly with profound and multiple learning disabilities. There's a really great lady called Joanna Grace, who runs a sensory project who's who's really really pushing this and I think it's a really important topic but we we all have nonsensical conversations with friends and family throughout the day talk about what you had for tea last night what was on EastEnders or um Mike I know you're a massive Love Island fan um you know (laughs) yeah. we we talk about these and there's there's no purpose to that talk other than having a person-to-person meaningful engagement And I kind of liken it to is if you were, uh, but people with learning disabilities, sorry, don't, particularly with profound disabilities, don't necessarily get that because information is not provided at a level they can understand. But they still require that that level of connection. Um, So we do. There's one thing that we do that's called intensive interaction, which is a form of sort of mimicry. It's trying to get a person to make a connection on a human level um and the one the best way i have was was put to me was by a speech and language therapist who used to work with that said it was chit chat for people with learning disabilities and what it is is you will mimic movements you'll mimic sounds that that person makes and then slowly hopefully over time that person understands that they have some control over that and that they can guide you in what you're going to do and that can be a fun thing and and why that why that's important, if you can imagine if you were picked up and dropped in the middle of, I don't know, somewhere that's culturally very different, in the middle of Nepal or middle of uh, Tokyo or in somewhere in wild Russia, you didn't speak the language, you were on your own, you didn't understand what was going on, you, and you feel quite alone. You feel quite isolated. If somebody stopped to you and said, and you were like, look, sorry, sorry, I'm really looking for some help. If everyone ignored you, ignored you, you would feel even more isolated. But if somebody stopped and tried to engage with you and just stopped and took the time, and even if they repeated back what you said. So if you said, look, I'm sorry, I'm lost. They go, look, I'm sorry, I'm lost. Can you really help me? I'm, I'm trying to find my way home. Oh, can you really help me? I'm trying to find my way home. It doesn't help you to get anywhere. But the fact that that person stops and taking time and effort and care to interact with you makes you feel better you would feel better you'd feel that like, actually this person is valuing me enough to spend time with me on a level that works for me and i think that's what chit chat or so or um, intensive interaction for people with learning disabilities is like it's that human contact at a level that suits the person it doesn't always have to have a purpose and that's one of the things that could come on to a little bit later about valuing and what we value a lot of people value communication and lives that are functional but there are a lot of people who exist on levels that are more sensory um, or levels that don't necessarily have to have an outcome, but they still have the same needs and still have the same enjoyment. And people who learn disability can still experience pleasure, they can still experience pain, they can still experience grief. So it's important that we give people a life that is as, as positive as possible. Yeah, I think that's a fun, fantastic metaphor
0: and analogy of, of the, the loss in Japan. And on previous episodes, I've always tried to drop in Clues of the cryptic titles that I'll give the episodes. Yeah. So i have just furiously scribbled down here. Lost in Japan. Lost in that Japan. Might be, that might be something to do with uh, with the <laughs> title, but I do think that you know I can certainly that resonates with me so much. When you think, yeah, I can really think of times where I have been in those situations where I'm struggling to be understood, yep. and how people interact with me or vice versa is so important and. And straight away, I feel that empathy then kicking in. I'm now suddenly starting to understand and that empathy linked to communications
1: is, is just so important. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as I said before, people learn. a lot of people who learn disabilities have so little control over their lives that anything that you can give somebody that empowers them to take some control, take some ownership, and understand that I can interact on a human-to-person-to-person to person level I think is of vast importance, is one of the most important things that we do. You know, my specialism isn't because I'm any... Different at physiotherapy. I don't employ any different skills or treatment techniques than any other therapist. If anything, what we're trying to do is take all the information and evidence that's out there from neuro, from MSK, from sports, from strength and conditioning and apply it at a level that people with learning disabilities can understand. And that's where our skill comes in as a specialist. It's not that we're any different as physios, it's that we can take the information and the evidence and we can alter it and adapt it in a way that. A person can engage with and understand. That's where the specialism comes in. It doesn't sound quite a bit hard. I sort of trivialise it, but you know, I think it is quite a challenge. And we certainly get students from universities, some of whom who are get it really quickly, and some of whom really, really struggle. Yeah, and and again, if you go
0: into any of those fields. If you watch how a paediatric specialist communicates with, with the youngsters, an and elderly care specialist, a respiratory specialist, or the neuros, you said, it's the communication skills that they've developed is the specialisation,
1: just understanding that audience. Certainly. And, I, and you know, coming down to – it really comes down to understanding the individual. And um, I was lucky enough to um, do a webinar on communication. I think called it called the hardest soft skill that went on to the um, – the, 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 platform that you put up recently mike and and it may be some people may see it a little bit flimsy but actually limb disabilities is struggling in a few areas in my personal opinion um as a a, an area of of physiotherapy but one place it is leaps and bounds ahead of all the other areas of physiotherapy is on that communication and and building rapport with an individual i think we are that is something in communication that we are streets ahead you know look at the msk look at the evidence that you know you're patient rapport and engagement is almost if not more important than a lot of the the actual treatment modalities that you have you know if you have a better rapport with the therapist you're going to have a better outcome longer term perfect you're going to get better understanding or empowering patients all these things that we've been doing for years and all of a sudden we're sort of like oh actually but we need to try and build on that and if we can transfer some we take a lot of skills and, and stuff from the msk and neuro and and all the different areas of physio if we can pass something back around it's really important that you learn to understand the individual and speak to the individual at their level now i treat people without learning disabilities as well and i still apply that you know the skills that you can learn working with people with learning disabilities are not just relevant to working with people with learning disabilities they will enhance every treatment contact that you have from now until the day you retire Yeah, and
0: I'm glad you reminded me of that then because I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, Alistair's got a great webinar up on therapistlearning.com. Communication, the hardest soft skill. Why is it important? How can it affect patient outcomes and how can you improve? So that encompasses everything that people can really get some benefit from. So do check that out. Now, as we go through the conversation, we'll talk about the uh, wider field of how the industry can be better at this but on a day-to-day basis what are some of the common frustrations that you encounter and how do you overcome these so
1: i think for me that some of the challenges although most of the challenges seem to find come down to to financial situations unfortunately i think um there's a, a daily fight for access to physiotherapy services um now one thing I would say is a lot of the people that we work with who do have comorbidities, otherwise they wouldn't be seeing physios not everyone with a learning disability requires physio because not everybody with a learning disability has a physiotherapy need. At the college I work with, it's about 60% of the population. And that's not everybody's in a wheelchair. There's probably about 30% in a wheelchair. And the others are, you know, common, I've got back pain, um, my shoulder hurts, you know, it's a common MSK issue. Um, and we're quite happy to deal with that. We've got a really, really fantastic facilities to 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 get on and crack on with those sorts of things um but for for funders to see that that person has a need there are a number of hoops that you have to jump through and i think a lot of that comes down to understanding and comes down to how we market ourselves as And i say market i work for a charity we're not marketing we're not in it for the money but, but it is is how we place ourselves as an area of physiotherapy and that's where i say that one of the areas i think we as limb disability physicians can get better because i think it would make it better for the people that we work for if we didn't have to argue for 3 6 weeks and people have to go to court and tribunal and challenge local authority decisions just to get access to physiotherapy. And a lot of the people that we see you know we're acting against neurological forces that are active 24/7. And these people there is for these people there is no regression to the mean. There is no recovery from cerebral palsy. You know, there is management of the condition long term, but if you talk to a commissioner about the fact that this person may need physiotherapy support for the rest of their life, or whatever that might look like, people people are horrified. But then, if you if you offset the level of physiotherapy support in a sleep system, which is a piece of equipment that's put in at night to maintain body shape and prevent scoliosis, scoliotic formation, with spinal rod surgery, then you know, you, it's it's such good value for money. And I think we haven't been good. As a profession at playing that numbers game. And I think there's a risk that we risk sleepwalking into oblivion and that we don't make these arguments, we don't make these cases, and therefore we're not seen and we're not valued. And one of my biggest bugbears is, is, is money and us not being valued as a profession. There's also a big issue, I think, there's an unwritten hierarchy within physiotherapy. And I think learning disabilities is a bit down at the bottom with, oh, it's cute, isn't it nice that you're giving people a chance, let's throw a ball around, when actually it's a lot more complicated than that. And that, I really get on my soapbox around that. I'm not going to do it today. Um, but yeah, so there's quite a few. There's others, but, you know, I'm mindful this podcast has um, uh, got to be relatively time limited.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. brilliant. And, and I mentioned at the outset about getting you on because of your passion. I'm sure the listeners, because you from that answer, the, the passion in your voice, but me watching you on a Zoom call, your frustration and animation to, towards some of these frustra- frustrations that you encounter... Is reassuring for me as a therapist to know that these guys have got someone like you fighting in their corner. But it must be fantastic for them to see someone championing this cause so much.
1: I think I'd like to see. I'd like to think that. And I work with an amazing team of incredibly motivated professionals. But our team's a number of ten. There's a number of other really highly highly motivated professionals uh, out there on social media. Um, but there's a it's a small it's a small number. Um, and you know I think if 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 I can just be a catalyst for conversation. Then I think that's a positive thing. If we can get this into people's psyches, this is not about me marketing anything. I haven't got anything to sell. This is about me saying I think this is right, and this is nobody else is saying this. So that's what this is about. Mm.
0: But likewise, this isn't a conversation just to increase education for those therapists listening. There are therapists working in every facet of healthcare right now that are, have a high probability. Of one day, someone walking in with a learning disability. So it's it's a practical help that we're trying to give them to be able to benefit
1: their patients. It certainly is, and actually, you know, healthcare has helped improve the longevity, the life, the, the, the um, lifespan of people with learning disabilities on the whole. Um, you know, and we're starting to see some of the common signs of aging that are associated with with you know, well, the common signs. Of most people with Down syndrome, we know that have a higher prevalence of Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, twenty thirty years ago, that wasn't necessarily quite as well known about. So, you know, the, the likelihood that you will see these people because they are, you know, getting arthritis and all those sorts of things, you know, in a rheumatoid clinic or anything like that, that that's probably you know more likely to happen. Hips, you know, orthopedics, all those sorts of areas. It, it's a positive thing, although I'm saying that the life expectancy is shorter. That's relative to the general population. That's been increasing, although on, on on sort of plateau recently. Um, but you know, people if services get ourselves in order, then there is that likelihood, increased likelihood that you're going to see people, you know, strokes, heart disease, all these sorts of things are going to be more prevalent. So we need to be prepared. Mm, Absolutely. Now, we're living in strange times, things are
0: slightly looking like we're on the up. Um, Everyone that we've spoken to at Sports Injury Fix has obviously had their own unique issues to deal with through coronavirus. How has it affected you and work and have things like virtual clinics been applicable appropriate have they been successful and how have you navigated the the last couple of months
1: yeah i think it's it's been very strange uh, but you know it's it's the same for everybody really i think for us virtual clinics we, we were unsure of how of how well they would work but they were the only option that we had um so probably a couple of weeks before lockdown was announced we made sure that we updated everybody's home exercise plans that we got on the phone to families, we sort of stopped seeing people face to face for a couple of weeks before lockdown, just to say, look, we think something's coming. If anything, it's going to be a lot of our clientele and students that are going to be the ones who are going to lock down first, if they're going to sort of grade it, it's probably going to be these people first. So let's make sure that everything from a home situation is set up right. Now, we normally don't have a jurisdiction in the home, we see people at an educational establishment, but we had to to transition, we had to move into, into a home role. And one of the big challenges that we found was nothing to do with the physiotherapy. It was everything to do with the fact that people were not supported in the community and that information is not put out there that is accessible. Now, it sounds like a small thing, doesn't it? Well, you know, they couldn't read the, the information that came out. Well, they couldn't access the TV. Well, actually, there's people with limb disabilities who've died because they starve to death. There was one man who didn't go out shopping because he didn't know he could because he was told to stay in, protect the NHS, lock down, isolate yourself. He didn't know he could go shopping and so he starved. I had another set of clients who were shielding very early on and couldn't get a Tesco delivery slot for three weeks. So they were eating, there were two of them in the house, they were eating one meal a day. Um, Suffice to say that as soon as we found that out, the team went to the local supermarket and and got him a load of groceries. Um, But, you know, these you know saying that information needs to be accessible is is actually a matter of life and death in these situations and so for the first couple of weeks when we were doing either telephone calls or zoom chats we were dealing with signposting we were dealing with look you know if you need some shopping you can go here if you're concerned you go here we had to really sort of clue upon the the guidance that was out there at the start of lockdown which wasn't necessarily you know great or or because it wasn't well known about so our role was very There was very little physio going on but it was all more around social support social work you know um, signposting Um, and then actually once we got people settled as an organization then we started to trip back into right let's think about keeping people active and that is a really really important thing you know exercise levels of people with learning disabilities the evidence out that out there isn't great but I know that there was an Australian study where that people said that they met the the World WHO guidance around. I think the the patient reported levels were were in the forties, and then they put activity trackers on it, and they found that people were, about five percent of people were hitting the actual WHO guidance for activity, and that's in the in the general population. So, in the population of people with learning disabilities, we perceive that to be even less. Why is that? Well, my own opinion is that exercise. If you take away the understanding of Uh, the physical and mental health benefits of exercise, which we understand and which for me is uh, as well as liking cake is the primary reason I exercise. You know, I don't like running. I'm I'm not built for running, but I run. Why? Because I want to stay healthy. I've got a family and I want to live a long and healthy life. But if you, if you take away that understanding of underlying understanding of what the benefits are, exercise in its purest form is hard, difficult, painful, and tiring. And actually, we could probably all do without it. I'd be quite happy just to say, you don't have to exercise again, perfect. For a lot of people who learn disabilities, they don't have that, that second level understanding. And so they just see the difficulty. So the skills we talked about earlier around communication, engagement, and giving people information at their level and building rapport means that when you ask somebody to do um, a deadlift or squats or wh- whatever exercise it is you're going to do, or get them on a bike and try and do some hit stuff, that they will engage because they, they trust you, they understand you, and they understand what you're asking of them and they understand a little bit of why. Um, and so exercise is yeah, massively needed and, and that's what we need to provide to people with learn disabilities. Yeah, such a brilliant answer and tragic
0: to listen to, to the story that you shared with us, but a, a stark, cold reminder of why many of us who work in healthcare need to be aware of the conversations and the situations that are being talked about constantly to do with social health, mental health, and the community at large, because it affects us and our population. Certainly, certainly Mm -hmm. do. So let's try and shift a little bit more towards a strategic sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Some take-homes for the therapists, I guess. If you were to give a message to the therapist listening in any facet that they're working in? What's the biggest things that they may
1: need to consider if a patient with a learning disability enters their clinic? So if a patient with a learning disability does pop into your clinic, whether you know about it or not, you are bound by law to give that person some reasonable adjustments under the Equality Act. So... The Quality Act 2010 says it covers a whole multifaceted area. I think it's 11 different areas. Um, the disability is under there, and you have to give a person reasonable adjustments for their therapy session that would enable them to engage better. Now, simply on the simplest side of things, if you're in a busy treatment area with lots of other people, and the person's struggling with noise or is coming with ear defenders on or headphones, you know, a reasonable adjustment would be to say, right, let's go and find somewhere else to treat you. Another one is that you can take longer sessions. So you are perfectly within your rights from a legal standpoint. And if you get challenged from your employers, say this that I am abiding by the law by giving the person a double slot. Even if it means that other people have to move around and the rest of the case, that has to be shifted around if that person just come in. Give them more time. You have to do that by law. And if you don't, you're breaking the law. Another thing would be to uh, read up a little bit about the Mental Capacity Act which I'm sure many people are aware exists, but don't necessarily understand its implications. But the Mental Capacity Act is there to support people to make decisions that they're able to make. Um, and it covers lots and uh, it covers every decision that a person can make, but it, you should presume that that person has the capacity to make a decision that's presented to them if it's presented to them in the right way. Um, and you should give everybody every chance be able to make a decision so if this is about a treatment session for example um you know what we're going to do today is we're going to do some exercises and then we might do something that might be a bit painful or a little bit risky we need to explain those things to you so that you can make a decision whether or not you're able to you want to engage with that based on the risks and the capacity act says that if that person is unable to make that decision based on a number of different parameters or they call it a disturbance of function of the brain um, that you should make a decision that is in their best interests. Now, that might mean that you have to um, engage with family and carers, and they're a really, really inter- important part of support for people with learning disabilities. Um, if it means that you need to stop your treatment there and take a wider decision that involves, you know, social workers or what have you or other professionals, and, and then do that as well. Um, but it doesn't just apply to people with learning disabilities. You know, this applies to everybody. You know, if you were if you're in a car accident and you are not unconscious, you know, the mental capacity act applies. If you can't make a decision for yourself, then decisions need to be taken in your best interests. Um, so make sure that if, if you believe that somebody doesn't have capacity, Mm -hmm. that you document that and that you state the reasons why, and that you make sure that you can demonstrate and, and defend why the decision that you took is in that person's best interest, but definitely read up on it. It's quite a long thing and it's a whole podcast in and in itself. Um, the final thing I'd say is is use, is use give the person time and space. You know, building rapport, I think, is a massively important skill that I touched on it before about having time and space for a person and having an environment where that person feels more comfortable with. You know, if they're coming to your clinic for the first time, the likelihood is that it's going to be a whole new world. And some people with learning disabilities and autism um, have what we call sensory processing <laughs> difficulties. And so their brain is slightly wired differently. That means that it's hard for them to filter out superfluous information in the same way that there's lights and sound and there's a, a doorstop in my room that's beeping right now. So sorry if that comes out on the podcast. Um, and to filter all that background information out and focus on what's in front of you. Now, if they're in a new environment, a lot of people, may, there's a risk they might become overwhelmed by all that sensory information that comes into their brain at once and just overloads the brain. So give people space and time and use families as well. They're a great source of information. And I think where a lot of therapists fall foul or have challenges with families, which does happen, is where they don't necessarily engage families in a way that is proactive. So use families. They're incredibly knowledgeable. They know more about the person than you'll ever forget. Um, but you always have to take, make sure that you understand the legal side of things around capacity um, to make sure that decisions are making in the best interest. Yeah, gold dust
0: brilliant nuggets for everyone listening there and nobody can see me but I'm nodding along like a little dog here because um (laughs) I know how hard it can be if you're a junior therapist if you're working in private practice and there's people paying money to to have your time then to make a stand almost that I'm taking longer with someone we know there's going to be challenges for people we know that's hard but um I remember in the in the short time that I spent in the NHS a couple of years ago, I was working in a, a community hospital outpatient department and someone came in with their carer learning disability and it was a real fastball. It was like, wow, we had no, there was nothing on the referral, sadly, yeah. that had highlighted what was going to be needed or that the fact something was going to be different. And I completely overran my session. And in the first session, all I did was was sit and listen and talk mainly to the to the mum
1: yeah.
0: um, now I was lucky because I was in my late 30s and I was quite happy to to swim against the tide a little bit myself but I had so the, the future sessions went so more effectively because I, I noticed this in the session it was a teenager and the mum and I were probably similar age at the time but the mum developed a trust in me because I took the time to do nothing but talk didn't yeah. even fill a piece of paper in And over that session and subsequent sessions, I felt the trust growing because the teenager was looking at the mum who was conveying trust to me, and that's how it all worked. And we ended up effectively, although we did communicate much better, the majority of it continued to be through the mum as a conduit. But um, it 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 was a landmark moment in my career of going, right, that's a bit of a penny drop now. Just, you know, absolutely sometimes draw a line in the sand, dig your heels in and, and do what the right thing is at the time, even if
1: you think, oh, I might get into some trouble for this. Yeah, no, certainly. And, and you know, I think laying the foundations as, as you, you, know, you were talking about there is, is, is incredibly important. You know, I remember spending, I think it was six months of weekly sessions with a young man with autism sat on the floor with him. I was trying to push for therapy early on. I probably tried to push too early and he just, I just needed to get onto his level um, and six months of him screaming, don't want to, don't want to, don't want to. Um, so we'd go for a walk around college, we'd sit, we'd play some football. And then in the end, you know, once he got that level of trust up, then we engage really well with therapy. Um, but I think one of the things that you highlighted there, which is another great point for a practical application that you can have, you can, you can highlight to people who are going to be accessing your clinic, if they have, or if they're booking on behalf of somebody with a learning disability, that they can make, that known to the person who's doing the booking then you can look at giving extra time for that person you can make sure that there's a staff member who may have a bit of an understanding there so the the clinic is prepared and if you can also encourage people to bring something called hospital passports now hospital passports are a bit like a traffic light system Um, and there's most people who learn disability should have, sometimes they're referred to as grab sheets, but if they're normally for emergency admission to hospital and they've got a lot of information about that person on from likes, dislikes, medical history, medications, um, emergency contact details, all that sort of stuff that that person may not be able to give to you verbally. um, But if you can ask them to bring that with them to your clinic appointment, that's going to, you know, your subjective history is going to be cut down massively and it's going to save a lot of time and effort and communication. And then you can engage in chit-chat And 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 the best the best tip around communication is find something that is important to that person. So if that person wants to talk about Pokemon, if that person's wearing a Liverpool football shirt, if that person's um come in with my little pony on or or whatever, engage with that thing. Engage, ignore everything else, engage with that thing, because what you're gonna get then is that person's gonna go, ah. you you recognize something that I like and I'm interested in. And people are happy to talk about what they're interested in. So ask them questions on it. That is a massive icebreaker and really is great for laying foundations. It sounds like such a small thing, but just saying or having a knowledge of, you know, I'm not a massive football fan, I'm a rugby lad personally. But I keep an eye on what's going on in the Premier League. You know, I know that Liverpool have won, I know that Man City in the FA Cup. Um, because they beat Newcastle and Stirling for the second Know a little about a lot of things and use that as an icebreaker. I knew one Pokemon that helped me to engage a guy with autism now who is just doing, is pushing deadlifts in the middle of the gym this morning. Because at that first session, we got into engage because we talked about it, and I was like, oh, do you know what? I really love Pikachu. And I was like, please give me something back because I've got no idea about any of And I was like, what's your favorite Pokemon? And it was off. He was off and I was just like, oh, what? And I could just ask him feeder questions around his Pokemon and he was happy to talk. But before that, he'd sat with his fingers in his ears. Find something that that person's interested in, break the ice on that, and that will lay the foundation for trust. And like you said, Mike, about getting the trust of families when families have more than likely throughout their livelihood had to go through battles because, as I mentioned before, about the funding challenges and the the litigations associated with trying to get the care that people need it's not necessarily that people want these things. These people need these things. And that's where the narrative needs to change. Yeah, such good information. Now, this is a loaded question.
0: And I know your answer because this was a, a Twitter poll that you put up a, a week or so ago. And, and effectively, it was the thing that kickstarted me to try and help get you back on here to give this message out. So do you feel that learning disabilities is an area of therapy that many therapists are fearful of? And if so, is this just due to exposure? So how, and then how do we overcome it?
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is to exposure. You know, as I say, we take students from uh, from University of Nottingham and Sheffield Hallam University here, and on the first day, a lot of the people who come are pretty terrified, and I think it's terrified of not knowing and being embarrassed and not knowing what to expect. And once people can get over that and engage with the person that sat in front of them um and sorry um and sorry just somebody popped in with a little note there for the guys in the podcast um once you can get past that and, and see the person rather than the you know somebody's coming down with autism well actually well let's meet john you know john has likes dislikes just like you do you know So I think once people have seen, you know, and and worked with a few people and they start to understand people as people who have likes, dislikes, hopes, fears, dreams, aspirations, you know, we've got people here at college who want to be, you know, actors on Broadway. We've got people who are working for Google. Actually she's a DJ who uses a power chair to create music. She's done gigs and nightclubs. You know, she's, she's got a job, you know, she, she, she wants to go on and do things. She's not just, Somebody who's coming down and can't talk, you know, and and I think it does come down to exposure and and learn disabilities is still really hidden. It really is amongst professional professional well work and and in society really, um, and I think that's that's definitely what needs to change. I mean, I've been. Uh, offered to a couple of universities and hallam university took me up on it to go in and, and deliver a lecture on on learned disabilities in physiotherapy because you know some places get an hour some thankfully they got two weeks on working on learned disability mental health which was better than a lot of places i know a lot of people have contacted me on twitter saying i get no information whatsoever can you please help um and i know that the undergrad course is a tenuous is a is um a challenging topic to debate, and people always say, Well, there's no time on undergraduate courses and XYZ. And but I think if people got rid of a lot of the, there's still a lot of um waffle that is being delivered at undergraduate levels, looking with some of the graduates that come through and some of the people that we meet through social media. You know, I mean, I'm not a lecture therapy fan, I'm not a manual therapy fan you know, because the evidence has evolved. You know, when I graduated 10 years ago, yeah, yeah, I was, you know, doing, doing those sorts of things. But I changed with the evidence. And I don't necessarily think the universities have kept up. And I think if we're looking at more equality, then we need to look at a, a, um, a prospectus and a course that, that reflects that. And it needs to encompass wider areas than just pushing people down an MSK route with old, you know, outdated treatments that aren't necessarily evidence-based.
0: Yeah, so I think that's almost answered the next question of whether you think the place to teach is within undergrad or postgrad or whether it's just something that should just be integrated into all existing systems at all existing levels.
1: I think there's going to be something that a lady called Paula McGowan, um, who tragically lost her son Oliver, um, has fought tirelessly for something called the Oliver McGowan Mandatory Training and that's going to be delivered to all NHS and social care staff. There's mandatory learning disability and autism training. Um, so she has definitely done an amazing job to get that off the ground because there's a lot of stuff. There's white papers get thrown out about learning disabilities, there's plans that get thrown out about learning disabilities, but there's very seldom action on them. You know, there's lots of we're going to do this and nothing ever comes of it. And I think a lot of that is because people with learning disabilities can't raise their voice, don't understand the systems, aren't given a seat at the table um and it's taken something that's her, as horrific as her son being you know potentially mismanaged in a hospital setting that led to his premature death to 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 get this training off the ground rather than people saying it should have happened and there were people saying it should have happened before but it's taken something so tragic as that for people to stand up and and, and take notice so I think from a postgraduate point of view if you're in NHS or, or social care then you may get that but I think ultimately integration is what is required and that needs to come from undergraduate teaching. Um, you know, I've been been working in cahoots with the, the fabulous Anne Gate of Exercise Works. And she was, when I first came complaining about physiotherapy and learning disability, she was like, look, you're, you're, you're thinking too small here. You've got a wider issue and you need to look at ta- tackling all of healthcare at a root cause level. And that comes down to undergraduate. If you can get the next generation understanding and more to the point of value. And I mean, one of your questions, I apologize, I'm going to jump onto it now about, if you could have carte blanche to change one thing about the healthcare system, it would be I would change people's values because one of the issues that we get and we've seen throughout this pandemic is that people just don't give a... Yeah, they don't care. They don't value people with learning disabilities. And that's tragic. There There were a case of 19, so DNA CPRs, do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation orders, which are placed in situations where CPR is deemed to be... Um, not worth it because of either medical issues or the person wouldn't necessarily survive, or it caused more problems than you know, or, or what have you. There were 19 of those placed on people with learning disabilities, and the sole reason that was given for that DNA CPR being put on those people was that they had a learning disability. Last year in the UK, there were 90 before the lockdown. There were 19 times where Down syndrome was written as a reason for do not attempt CPR. And I come back to my initial statement that a learning disability is not a medical healthcare need. It's a challenge taking on new information, and that is it. And and I, you know, I can we can train skills around communication, we can train skills around engagement, we can train skills around building rapport and physiotherapy and exercise. But I don't know how we train values, and that is the one thing. If I could change, it would make such a difference. I think to to the treatment and support for all people with learning disabilities. Yeah, and, and as much as we're trying to
0: give a pragmatic explanation and help to those therapists to, to get across then I hope that many of the listeners are taking on this message with the shock and all that I am as I'm listening to some of this stuff because it's truly eye-opening as, as you're telling us so many things now certainly if there was a dictionary with a picture of passionate proactive people I think Anne would be the, the face next to it she's she is amazing lady amazing yeah. uh, the pleasure of meeting her at um one of the big R's conferences and sitting next to her and yeah, inspirational,
1: really yeah. fantastic person. Anne's definitely the person that lit the fire with me to, to start to spread my message out there before I was sort of, you know, shouting into her in an empty room and she was like, you need to take this message out there and you need to swallow your own nervousness and scaredness about being just a physio. And you've got a message that needs to get out there and, you know, chatting to yourself, might like, you've been another person who's really supportive in helping to spread that message. So thank you very much. Right, it's a pleasure. Um, Now, I
0: know you, you mentioned it already, you've been heavily involved in the Special Olympics. Now, that's an area that I think a lot of people don't realise the scale of it. Mm. You know, it's been around longer than most people think. And when I was doing a bit of research on it, 4 million athletes in 170 plus countries are involved with the Special Olympics. So tell us how you got into it and just talk to us about your experiences in that field.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so the Special Olympics is the Olympics. It's the third member of the Olympic family uh, alongside the Olympics and Paralympics. It's the um, uh, the poor, poor cousin, um, shall we say. But it was set up by Eunice um, Shriver-Kennedy. J JFK's um I think sister, I can't but I can't remember now. Mike, you've just been doing your research. It's on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially she was trying to trying to give people learn disability as a platform to prove what they could do through the medium of sport. And she set up these games that started in the US and it's now become a global movement, like you say, with Millions of people around the world, and actually in Abu Dhabi this time last year. Sorry, in March last year, there were a hundred. There were nearly 190 countries. I think there were about 190 countries took part in the World Games, and I, I, my involvement started when I used to take my brother down, as I mentioned to earlier, and then I trained as a physio, and I went to an event. There's a national games that was in Leicester in 2009 um and i went as my brother's support my brother needs help with personal care and medication so i went to support him with that it was a residential thing for a week fabulous we were at the the walker stadium opening ceremony there was there's a flag there's a torch there's a whole olympic ceremony um but these are people across the uk that came um and from that i was given a a nod that there was um going to be a little thing called the world summer games that was happening in los Angeles in twenty fifteen. And so there was a physio job going, it was a voluntary position, um, but they would, you know, they'd pay to fly you out and you'd be looked after while you were there with the athletes. So I, with the support of my employer um, at Portland, they were really, really great, applied for that and, and, and was in Los Angeles for three weeks, um, meeting the celebrities, you know, seeing the sites, but it was engaging in, 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 you know, some some hard some hard competition and, you know, the opening ceremony was at the Memorial Coliseum, you know, Michelle Obama opened the ceremony, you know, Nicole Scherzinger's there, um, 80,000 people, you know, it was televised on ESPN. Um, it was absolutely massive and there's loads of press. And I think the Special Olympics in the UK is starting to be a bit more upcoming, but in, in America it's massive. It is massive. Um, they got live roundups every day, so it was it was just great to see people with learning disabilities valued for their ability and their ability to engage in a sport. Now, the difference from the Paralympics is so much as the Paralympics is classified on disability, and quite simply, the Special Olympics is classified on ability. So categorizations are based on your ability to compete in an event so for example quite simply the 100 meters if you can run the 100 meters in between 10 and 11 seconds you'll be grouped together regardless of what your disability is so you might have somebody with cerebral palsy and somebody with down syndrome and somebody with autism all competing together but it's a meaningful competition and then you'll have different categories of people who can run it slightly slower or people who can throw something slightly less far or further or jump further and there's you know it, it takes about 20, 30 different events from equestrian to sailing to triathlon to cycling. You know, it's, it's the full Olympic um, repertoire um, that, that takes place. So, I've managed, then I had the, the pleasure of going to Austria to the, to the Winter Games. So, there's a summer and a winter Games, as there is for any of the Olympics. I believe the latest ones have just been announced for um, going to be held in Russia. Uh, that was announced this week. It was going to be in Sweden, but it's been moved to Russia in 2022, I believe. And the next national games, which will part of my role as health screening, uh, we're going to be looking for volunteers to come and help with health screening in 2021 in Liverpool. Um, so, And that will be a great chance for people to come and just essentially get to grips with engaging with people with learning disabilities. We will give you training um, around that. Um, and it doesn't just have to be physios, you know, we've had OTs, we've had chiropractors, we've had sports therapists come across. And just if you want a good foundation and or even just getting over your nervousness around engaging people with learning disabilities and seeing people for people rather than seeing somebody who can't understand what you're saying and challenging your own communication and your own biases, please come along. Um, uh, and then, as I said last year, sorry to waffle on, um, I was lucky enough to go to Abu Dhabi to the World Summer Games there. Um, I had an amazing time um, with, with the athletes out there, the most successful um, sporting GB team in terms of number of medals ever. Hopefully some of you heard a little bit about it. We got a little bit of better coverage from we had a, a film crew that were out with us from ITV, some features on BBC News. Um, but still, these athletes, I don't think, get the recognition they deserve. They train hard. They are good at their sports and they are valued for that. Yeah, you just started answering one of my next questions. Being the uber competitive person I am, is how is Team GB doing? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you're not allowed because the Special Olympics doesn't focus on international competition per se. Although you know at the World Games is people from all, all over the world, and um, I think TB Team GB is is gone as a, as a, an organisation has gone through a structural process change. we've got Michelle Carney who's a new CEO who's come in and is looking to, to change things a little bit um, but I think it's in a really strong position um, you know there's definitely I've seen a, a lot of in Los Angeles there was a very different makeup to the to the coaching and support team that went out you know we took out 165 athletes to, uh, to uh, Los Angeles we took about 180 out to Abu Dhabi and there was a very different mix of coaches that went out there there's a lot more youth in there involved and a lot of different ways of thinking and not that youth is always you know the greatest predictor of success but we got our most medals ever um, we did get told off for announcing that actually we were top of the medals table for a couple of days while we were out there. Uh, and we got our, our knuckles royally wrapped because it's not about the medals table, but you know, we were, <laughs> we were quite proud of yeah. of how well the athletes had, had really engaged and, and, and risen to the challenge because, you know, a lot of these people may have never even been away from home residentially for a period. And we're taking them to the other side of the world, competing in front of TV cameras, having an opening ceremony in front of 80,000 people and the, and the king of Abu, you know, Sheikh of Abu Dhabi, you know, and, there's Avril Levine singing on stage and, you know, Nicole Scherzinger came out, she's the Great Britain ambassador. She came out and had photos, you know, so it's just a whole different world of exposure that treats the athletes as they should be treated. And that's for being good at their sport. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what date in 2021 is the Liverpool event?
1: Uh, that's a very good question, and I should have written that down before we <laughs> spoke. And um, just it was supposed to be this year. Okay. Um, I'm just absolutely not googling whatsoever. Um, um, when it got moved to, uh, you put in Liverpool, and it doesn't matter what else you put in. All I get at the moment is football. Yes. Have they done something good recently? No idea. No idea. No. <laughs> uh-huh. can't, can't be anything, right? So it will be held from Tuesday, the 3rd of August, until Sunday, the 8th of August, 2021.
0: Brilliant! Brilliant.
1: So there's going to be, they reckon, around 2,000 athletes taking part from all over the country in a range of sports, including athletics, botcher, football, gymnastics, swimming. Um, and then there's something called the motor activity training program for people who've got really severe physical disabilities. Um, and yeah, there's, there's loads, loads at the last games, um, we were in Sheffield and Gareth Southgate came out England manager to, to watch some of the events. So, you know, it's a really great chance to, to, to get out there and, and just to expose yourself and, and to give people some support and give people some credibility and recognition for being good at something. Yeah, brilliant.
0: And just to reiterate what you said, if there's any sports injury fix members or any therapists listening, regardless of background or experience, they're more than welcome to try and get involved.
1: Certainly are more than welcome, yes. And close to the time I will be tweeting out um, a links when the volunteer portal opens up and there's a, a, there'll be a volunteering process and a portal you can go through and you can signpost yourself and that'll get hopefully signposted to me and we can look at arranging and
0: setting that up. Oh, perfect. Now I'm going to call it here and now and announce that I'm going to try and do everything I can to come along to that.
1: I yeah, think that's, that's,
0: that's yeah. such an important week um, as a therapist and as a human being. I think that's a special thing to try and be involved in. Um, my background in the military meant that I've had involvement in the past in the Paralympic world. So, um, so I, know, I know exactly where you're coming from with how high quality athletes that you're dealing with here. This isn't some go along and have fun stuff. This is some serious competition
1: yeah, um, athletes, with people, everything
0: with people who train really hard at what they do. Yeah. So, um, so I think this is a really valuable thing. As far as working with learning disabilities, finding out more, learning more about you, where can everybody who's listening find out more?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of different resources. I mean, Learn Disability England are normally quite good if you would like to look more around um, learning disabilities. The Royal College of Speech Therapists are really useful if you're trying to look around communication um and there's also uh the Macaton um association who look at signpost uh, signing sorry a Macaton signing, which is a, a, a sort of a uh an, a, an adapted version of british sign language that some people with learn disabilities use but you'd use it at the same time as you speak as mike you've been on there um signed along with me and there's also a, a thing that we've put on on social media called Macaton for healthcare professionals or Macaton for HCPs is the hashtag where you can look at some of the signs that we've tried to sign post-healthcare professionals to that you can again break the ice with somebody that they, oh, you you can you're trying to engage with me, you're trying to meet me on a human level. Um I'm on social media at the LD Physio on Twitter and Instagram. Um not quite as popular on Instagram because I don't get flesh out enough, it would appear. Um, but you know, that's that's what it is. Um and I'm also on LinkedIn as as myself as well. Yeah, and I would definitely,
0: definitely advocate people following Alistair, checking out those links. Um, I followed him closely now for, as I said, best part of a year, and um, the passion that comes out in every message is there, coupled with a really nice balance of information and education. So, So whatever you work in, whatever field you are, however far removed you think you may be from this world, if you want to be a better therapist, this is something to look into, because ultimately the messages that Alistair's pushed from the start is it's about understanding the person, taking the time, building trust and rapport and empathy, and then treating the individual with an open-minded approach. So effectively, that is what we talk about in whatever field we're doing. So we should just be trying to be better therapists with the
1: people in front of us, regardless of where their their backgrounds lie. Exactly. Diagnostic overshadowing, people treating because of a learning disability or because of things that are associated with a learning disability and missing underlying issues or health issues is a massive problem so you know treat the person as a person don't treat oh i've got another down syndrome client in because they'll be the same as the last one because they won't be everyone's an individual
0: brilliant as always buddy it's been fantastic and eye-opening for me i don't think i ever don't learn when i read or listen or speak to you so so thank you so much for sharing what you're so passionate and so skilled in um, and to all the listeners, hope you really enjoyed this, enjoy this episode and make sure to tune in soon. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this or any other of our episodes, then please do like, share, subscribe and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find us across all social media platforms as Sports Injury Fix and also on our YouTube channel. Thanks to our sponsors. The fantastic therapistlearning.com, the high quality, easily accessible, curated learning platform for the modern MSK therapist. Stay safe, keep well, we'll be back soon.